Good morning, Sun Valley. Children, I think you can be dismissed at this time to go to Children's Church. The rest of you can open up your copy of the Bible to Psalm chapter 119. We're going to continue our, our sermon series that we've just begun here in the last few weeks. So thankful that you're here to participate with us, to hear uh, what the Holy Spirit has to say to us through these sacred words. Um, you've heard a few times this morning already the uh, idea of the pursuit of joy and pursuit of happiness that we all uh, have built into our souls by our Creator. Uh, God has designed us in such a way to have insatiable appetites for joy, for happiness. Uh, it seems that we have an infinite capacity for happiness and joy. I've never met a person that says, I'm just too happy. I wish I could be a little less happy. Uh, that person really doesn't exist, I don't think. Uh, and it's because our Creator has designed us to be pursuers of joy, pursuers of happiness. This is how we're built. Um, in fact, He's designed us to find our ultimate joy, our most satisfying joy in Him, who is infinite. Man, it, does that give you a little bit of a, a yearning for heaven to have this um, insatiable drive for joy that is actually an infinite capacity that's built into us, knowing that we have an infinite God who is the author of joy awaiting us in heaven? What a great place that will be where these two things come together for us, face to face with our Savior, who, who is the author of life and joy, and us, his creatures, who are built to experience joy. It's going to be a great day, a great day, which is why we sing about it, which is why we sang about it this morning. And the great thing is, is that we don't have to wait till eternity to start experiencing the joy that God has designed us to experience. We have actually been given instructions by God Himself through His Word on how we can experience joy, how you can experience more joy. When our Creator visited us 2,000 years ago, He taught us the way to happiness. When Jesus preached His very first sermon on the Mount, which we heard the introduction of that sermon just read from Matthew 5, this was His topic, this was His theme, joy and how to get it. If we had a book written by that title, I'm sure it would be a bestseller in no time. But our Creator has re revealed to us, through His prophets, the path to joy. Psalm 119 begin, begins with a description of a person who finds true happiness. Look there with me. Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are happy are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. This is God's word to us. This psalm, along with Jesus' first sermon in Matthew 5, begins with offering to us the way to experience happiness, joy, fulfillment. And so if you're here this morning lacking any of these things, then Psalm 119 was written for you. This sermon is for you. God in his sovereign control of all things has brought you here for this time in a divine appointment so that you can leave happy. This is the great thing about being in Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 11, Jesus records, or Jesus speaks, rather, his sermon introduction, and in that introduction he said, happy or blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Okay, what's that mean? Well, poor in spirit are those people who acknowledge that they have no way, no means to uh, accomplish what God wants them to do in and of themselves. Poor in spirit are those who realize that they have nothing, nothing in themselves to offer God. Jesus said, blessed are those because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn. Who are they? Those who are sorry for their sin because they will see God. Happy are the meek, those who approach God humbly Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then thinking back to Psalm 119, verse 5, the psalmist says, Oh, that my ways would be steadfast, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Could it be that Jesus knew Psalm 119? 
It's just not could be. It was. He knew Psalm 119 by heart. I'm confident that Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5 was a result of him meditating on Psalm 119 for most of his youth. So he could come out and say exactly what Psalm 119 says. Happy are those who do this. Happy are those who pursue God. Psalm 119 tells us that the happy person is the one that maintains a specific conduct. Do you notice that in verse 1? The people who are happy are those, it says, whose way are blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Those who have a consistent walk with Christ. Those are the ones the Bible tells us are happy. Jesus and the psalmist evidently were referring to the same group of people. Happy people are those who follow Christ consistently. The heart of those who find happiness are poor in spirit. They mourn over their sin. They're pure in their motives. They're meek people who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and their conduct is merciful and peacemaking. All these things are the result of the work of God in us, his people. Looking at verse 2 and reflecting on Jesus' words in Matthew 5, we see that the happy person also has a specific frame of heart. Do you notice that in verse 2? It's the person who seeks God with all their heart, Their heart has a definite tilt to it, and it's Godward. So that frame of heart begins, as we can see in this very verse, verse 2, it begins with a clear understanding of what the Bible is. What does the psalmist refer to, or what does he title the scriptures in verse 2? God's testimonies. You remember that in Psalm 119, the psalmist uses eight to ten synonyms to describe the scriptures. He uses eight to ten different titles to describe the Bible as we know it. And so when he comes here, he says, the testimonies of the Lord. So we can see this, the first point being, the heart of happiness is found in God's testimony. He uses these different synonyms to bring about different nuances, important differences in our understanding of what the Bible is. Here he calls it God's testimonies. God's testimonies are those things that we find in Scripture that include doctrine, commands, stories, warnings, promises. This book, this Bible that we hold in our hands, is a testimony from God about how we can have our sins forgiven, how we can be in right relationship with God, how we can look forward to heaven, how we can be saved from his judgment. These are his testimonies to us. It's like a testimony given by anybody. A personal testimony is a story about something about yourself. It's the same way here. This is God's personal testimony to you and me. This book is is God's testimony. It's, It's been given to us, and it reveals something personal and even intimate about God. This testimony of God, the Bible, is really the the mind of God in hand. You you realize, friend, that you're holding the mind of God in your lap right now. This is how God thinks. This is what God expects. This is what he pursues in others and in us. This is what he wants from us. This is God's testimony revealed to us in written word. You want to know what God's like? Read the Bible. You want to know what he likes, what he dislikes? Read the Bible. You want to know what his will for your life is? Read the Bible. And because of of God's kind nature... He would not leave us in the dark about what pleases him or or how we can be saved. Aren't you glad about that? That we actually have his record, his own personal testimony on how we can be saved from sin, saved from hell. What a blessing. We were born blind with dull minds concerning the things of God, which is why God has revealed himself to us. He's told us exactly what we should be thinking and how we should be acting. This was read for us earlier, but look at it again, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, insert your name, he has told you your name, what he requires of you, what is good, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. There you have it. God has, in fact, told us about himself and what he needs, what he wants. And because this is God's mind and hand, we have a confidence that this word, in fact, is trustworthy, it's reliable. 
It's from a God who cannot lie. It's, it's from a God who loves us and desires us to be in fellowship and communion with him. So we can trust it as this book leads us towards him. This isn't just another piece of literature. This is actually God's testimony. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 9, the apostle said, If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. This is the testimony from God about Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, this is about him. So this book brings spiritual life because the author of life is the one who gave us this book. This book brings us joy because the author of joy gave us this book. It brings about change in the life of all who will embrace this book. Jesus said that it is through this word that we are transformed into his image. That Christian word sanctify means to be changed, to be bettered. Jesus said sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth, in his prayer to his father in John 17. So this word is what brings about your transformation. This also, because it is God's testimony, is a standard for self-evaluation. Why must you believe this book? Why does it matter if you, if you align your life to the principles established in this book? Because this is your creator's testimony. Your creator has designed you with specific purposes. And when you align yourself with his purposes, you honor God and receive fulfillment. It, this is God's personal testimony about who we should be, about his character and how we relate to him, about his affections, his requirements. This is a trustworthy testimony. It, it defines for us good and evil, defines for us how we should use our time, defines for us how we should think about others. And because God, our creator, is the ultimate judge, his word must be the standard against which we measure ourselves. That only makes sense, which is also why there is a condemnation if we neglect or ignore this testimony. Friends, if the Bible we possess is actually the testimony of God to us, how significant is this book? If this is actually God's testimony... How important is it that you have this book in hand? If God, in fact, has given us everything we need for life, both physical and spiritual, in this book, and we reject it or ignore it, what should we expect from him? The same things that your children should expect if they ignore your direction. Right? I don't think we can overemphasize the importance of the Bible. I mean, if the Bible were just a collection of God's laws, that would be sufficient enough to obey it, right? Why? Because he's our creator. But it's more than just his laws, it's his testimony about himself, about his love for us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10 tells us that this book is God's testimony concerning his son, Jesus Christ. So we must think as it more than just his law, but his truth, his intimate communication to his creation, to us, that he loves this is why we should endeavor to keep it, the psalmist says. You see, the way to please God, the way to enjoy him, has been clearly revealed in the text. We can actually know God and his will for us. This is indeed a precious book. You remember this book, this song we just, we just sang? How precious is the book divine? By the way, we're the first church ever to sing this song by that tune. How would you like that? You're, you're famous now. The, book, the, the words we sang were, How precious is the book divine, by inspiration given, bright as a lamp, its doctrines shine, to guide our souls to heaven. Is that not a precious book that you have in your hands? Oh, my friends, there isn't anything more valuable. All that the Creator requires of us is recorded here. All that he wants us to know about himself, about his love, about our problem, about the solution to our problem is here, found in this book. There's nothing left out. 
There's no secret or important or book or letter that's mistakenly omitted. This is exactly what we need. This is exactly what the world needs. Unfortunately, there are millions upon millions that don't have one copy. They don't have one copy of this. How many copies of this book do you own? How many copies of this book are lost under the seats of your car? Let alone stored up in some closet that you never enter in your home. We, I bet you we have on the average 10 copies of the Word of God in possession. And like I said, there are millions who have none. Not one verse. Many of you know that we support missionaries who are specifically involved in the work of translation. One of those missionaries happens to be my daughter, Michelle, who now goes by an odd last name. (laughs) Clausen is her last name now that she's married. But I've asked her to come and share with you a little bit about the importance of translation. So Michelle, if you'd come up and, and share with us what's on your heart. And I'd like you to listen to what she has to say. So I'm Michelle Clausen. I work with Pioneer Bible Translators. Uh, My husband, Jonathan, also works in Bible translation, though in a different role in a different organization. Right now, I want to ask you the question, how has this book impacted your life? Um, Josh, do you mind telling me a, a passage of the Bible that has impacted you greatly? Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1 says, For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. This verse in particular just tells us, right? What if, we, what if we didn't have this verse? What if... What if we ripped that page out of our Bible? Or what if, what if we didn't know that, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? What if we rip that page out? In fact, what if we didn't have any of it? What if we didn't have one verse? What if our Bible was blank, like this one? Not one verse of God's word? What if nobody we ever knew had ever been told that God is light and in him there is no darkness? What would we believe about God? What would we believe about ourselves? What would we believe about life, about death, about how to treat people? This is the state for hundreds of millions of people in the world. There are 1,800 language groups that don't have one verse of scripture and no project started. In two weeks, uh, my husband and I have the opportunity to visit one such tribe in Indonesia. And these people, uh, because they've never been told you know, that, that God is the sovereign creator, uh, that he knits us together in our mother's womb, and, and that all people are made in his image, because they don't know that, among other strange beliefs, they believe that the second twin that's born, if twins are born, the second one is an evil spirit that is put on flesh and will come back and, and overtake and kill the good twin and, and wreak havoc amongst, amongst their people. So they kill it. Uh, and sometimes it's in gross ways, they'll tie it by its feet and hang it up in a tree until it dies. This happened as recently as three months ago in this tribe because they have never heard. In earlier this year in February, I was with my coworkers and we visited our field, uh, an area that we work in East Asia. And in this area, again, it's, it's completely Bibleless, it's completely churchless, and we don't know of one Christian that is in this area. We went to one of their ceremonies and watched as they sacrificed animals, collected their blood in a basin, and then poured it on a tree because they think that a dragon god lives under the tree and they need to appease him because they've never heard of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. 
And then, and then the, the projects that we work in that have received the gospel, that have received this, uh, it's an amazing, beautiful difference. These, these people far and wide, all the way around the world, that used to beat and kill their wives, now all of a sudden aren't doing that. And it's not because the missionary said, don't do that. It's because the Holy Spirit convicted them through this book. And in, in a project in India, uh, where there's been amazing gospel movement, gospel momentum, it, it, communities have banded together to, to buy back the little girls that they sold into slavery, into sex slavery, as a community, even if it wasn't their daughter, even if it wasn't, uh, you know, if it, even though it cost them their money and their time. This is how the gospel transforms communities. Uh, in, in West Africa, we work with a group called the Susu, and they are a Muslim people group. And my coworker Brad uh, moved in and started working with them. And since they were Muslim and very devout Muslims, he knew that they, in the Quran, would have heard about King David and his writings. So he decided, I'm going to start translating in the book of Psalms. And so uh, this, this is the volume that contains the Psalms. We had to do it in three, three volumes because... The, the text is quite large. But uh, so he translated Psalm chapter 1, and he, as soon as he was done with it, he, he took it straight to the mosque, and he called over one of the imams and said, read this. And now this was the first portion of anything ever written in Susu. They didn't have a written language, but he knew that they read Arabic, so he used Arabic symbols to write down the Susu language. And the imam started reading Psalm chapter 1, and he's reading and he says... Blessed is he who does not walk in the way of the wicked or sit in the seat of scoffers, but he meditates on the law of the Lord night and day. He is like a tree planted by streams of water who bears its fruit in its season. He said, this is amazing. This is beautiful. This is God's word. And he started calling people from outside the mosque and from inside the mosque to gather around. And he said, listen to God speak your language. Listen to God speak Susu. And would read it over and over and over. And turned to my, my coworker and said, don't come back until you bring more. And after he finished the Bible, they had a, a ceremony where he handed out the Bibles to these people. And at the end of the ceremony, the imams collectively came up and said, are those boxes extra Bibles? Can we have them to put in the mosque so that anyone who comes to worship God can read about him in their language? This book is powerful. This book informs us, and this book transforms us. I'm going to be in the foyer in the lobby area after the service and would love to tell you more about the Ministry of Bible Translation, answer any questions that you might have, and uh, also tell you of all the ways that we can get involved. Thanks. It's indeed a precious book, isn't it? One of the, my favorite stories that Michelle has told me about um, Bible translation is, I can't remember where it was, Michelle, that you told me, but uh, one tribe received for the first time a copy of a portion of scripture, and their chief, um, in all of his chiefly garb and, and lack of clothing thereof, um, led a, a community parade, um, and at the front of the parade was his personal copy of that portion of scripture. And he danced through the, the, the dirt roads or whatever was there. Um, I saw a video of it that, uh, you know, made me think, how much do I value the word? You remember David, King David, um, when they brought the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the word of God, back into Jerusalem, he had a similar dance and parade going that this Indian tribesman had. And yet we have 10 copies. Yeah. All the time around us. It's a precious book. The great C.H. Spurgeon said, the blood of martyrs is on the Bible and also the blood of translators and confessors. The doctrines which we preach to you are doctrines that have been baptized in blood. Of course, you know, friends, that the Bible was not originally written in English, don't you? Jesus didn't speak English, and neither did Paul. But a gentleman 
in church history actually gave his life so that you could read, read an English Bible. He gave his life physically. He was killed because of what he did with the scriptures so that you could sit here with your 10 copies. It's a precious book. Friends, church history is scattered with those who have sacrificed everything, and I mean everything, so that others could have one copy of one section of this book. A heart of happiness, friends, is found in God's testimonies. Secondly, a heart of happiness depends on keeping God's testimonies. Listen to this logic and see if it confuses you as much as it did me at the beginning. If there's any culture that has sufficient supply of Bibles, it's the Western culture, our culture. And yet our culture seems to be the most malcontent of any culture in this world. We have plenty of Bibles and very little joy to speak of. What gives? I thought, Pastor John, you just said that, you know, copies of the testimony of the Scriptures brings joy. Actually, I didn't say that, but you're thinking that's what I said. Look at verse 2 again, Psalm 119. What does it say? Blessed are those who have his testimonies. It says, blessed are those who keep them. It's one thing to have them, it's another thing to keep them, is my point. What does it mean to keep God's testimonies. Well, first of all, on the most basic level, it means to memorize it, keep it in your memory. You know, we've talked about, uh, challenged you to be memorizing Psalm 119 as we work our way through it. We're going to spend about six to eight weeks covering one stanza, which is, is eight verses. Remember, this is made up of 22 stanzas representing one Hebrew alphabet each. Um, and so we have 22 eight verse sections, and it's going to take us six to eight weeks to get through that eight sections, that eight verse section, which means you have about one verse to memorize per week. We all can do this. The challenge is saying them back to back to back to back 176 times, right? And that which requires review. So the challenge has been put before you. We'll see how many can accomplish this. I've been collecting your ideas as to how we might reward those who complete the whole psalm by memory. And I've had some pretty interesting suggestions, including a lifelong supply of Slurpees. Um, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, but one of you has uncovered a minor deception, and I must confess it to you. One of you asked the, me this last week um, by way of, in, in way of email, and this person asked me why we needed to be motivated to memorize Scripture with some kind of a prize. This person asked, isn't the prize that I get closer to God and have His Word in my heart and able to battle sin, as it says in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up Your Word in my heart that I might not sin. Isn't that the prize? And there is my confession. All right? The prize is God, friends. The prize is joy that he promises. Although I'm not below offering you some kind of mundane prize to get you to do it. God is the prize. Your joy is the prize. It's when God's word is put into memory that the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds to understand his will which slowly but surely begins to take hold and changes our affections with a real and deep desire to love and obey God, which, which fills our souls with satisfaction. In order to be happy, we must keep God's testimonies. In order to keep God's testimonies, we must understand them, which is why we teach you the Bible here at Sun Valley Church. What does it mean to keep his testimonies? First, to memorize them, to understand them. Secondly, to practice them, to obey them. To obey, to practice what we hear, what we read. Jesus said this in Luke 11, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word and keep it. 
Not just those who hear, not just those who read. He also said in John 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So just having a supply of Bibles doesn't guarantee you anything. Psalm 119.2 says, blessed are those who keep them, who keep his testimonies. You see, it's not just a matter of putting a sequence of words into memory. It's actually about practicing what we read from God's testimonies. If we are being conformed into his likeness, it will become, it will rather come from a familiarity with his likeness. And, and where does this familiarity come from? His word, his word. Being able to recite the Great Commission is a good thing, don't you think? Uh, it's a good thing. It's a fine thing. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We should all have that put to memory. But actually making disciples is what Jesus is after, not with your memory of his command. It would be like telling my son to take out the trash and him being able to repeat back to me the command. Okay, Dad, this is what you said. You said, David, take out the trash, the dad version. You got it. You got it, son. Great. Good. You got the command down. It's foolishness to think that way, isn't it? No. David, the idea is for you to actually pick up the garbage and take it outside. Not to tell me what I told you. And so we must think about it that way. This is critically important. Just because we are able to quote Ephesians 4.32 doesn't mean that we are actually forgiving those in our lives that, that offend us. Right? Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And just being able to quote that doesn't mean that I'm all that good at forgiving people. The way to keep God's testimony, most importantly, is obeying his commands. But when we memorize them and when we obey them, guess what happens? We grow to love them. We actually love God's testimonies. So do you love the word? Do you cherish it? And all over scripture, almost in every book, we have commands and illustrations and stories about the importance of God's word. Proverbs 6, for example, my son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck if you have to. Then he says in chapter 7, keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye, which is strive to have a deep affection for God's testimonies. We can easily say with our mouths that we love God's word, but it, but it isn't our words that matter. It isn't our ability to memorize a long sequence of words that matters. We are not, when we face Jesus on Judgment Day, we're not going to be asked how much of the Bible do we have memorized. Do we actually keep it? Do we obey it? Is it a priority to us? Do we marinate in it so that the Spirit of God has sway over our lives? It was like this for the Apostle Paul. Chapter 3 of his letter to the Philippian church, he says this, Yet indeed I also count all things lost. Now think about all the things that he's referring to. Paul had a lot of things to refer to before Christ and even after Christ. All right? He spoke with Jesus. He knew the law backwards and forwards. He was a man of status. And he says, I count that all rubbish compared to the knowledge of Christ. Compared to knowing Jesus. So we have this heart of happiness that's being revealed to us here in verse 2, chapter 119 of Psalms. And one way that we can see whether or not that this is on our radar, that this is in our path, is whether or not we're actually wholly seeking God. Look at verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Happy are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. A heart of happiness is revealed by wholly seeking God. 
The Prince of Preachers, C.H. Spurgeon, said this, If God's word is precious, we may be sure that he himself is still more so. Friends, if, if we truly think that the word of God is precious, don't you think God will be precious to us, the author? That's Spurgeon's point. That's the point of number three here. The more we grow in Christ, the more we'll want to be with him. Seeking God with a whole heart is a genuine desire to commune with him more intimately, to follow him more closely, to enter into a, a more perfect union with his mind and his will, and to love his people more sacrificially, all of these which promote his glory more fully. This is what it means to seek God with a whole heart. Are, are you discouraged by your lack of seeking after God, maybe after sitting here for the last 15 minutes you might be. But are you discouraged with your lack of seeking God? Spurgeon said this, there is no heart as whole as the broken heart. So I'm saying it's not so bad to be discouraged with your lack. It has to start there. A broken heart is certainly capable of being whole, but a divided heart is not. In fact, sometimes our, whole, our wholeness requires our hearts to be broken with discouragement, with weariness, with failure. Sometimes that's the only place to be in order to have a whole heart. You see, the thing, the only thing that keeps us from seeking God with our whole heart is a divided heart. Partly with God and partly with the world. What does God have to say about that? Not in favor. He's not in favor of that. He wants our whole heart. See, the blessing, happiness, joy, fulfillment comes to those who seek him with their whole heart. So how do we, how do we move this direction as distracted Christians? First of all, I want to say this, test your affections. Do you truly want God? Thomas Manton said, no man seeks what he has before what he does not have. So here's the, the, the simple truth. The only reason you might want God is because you know you don't have enough of him. And that's a good thing. If you're content with your knowledge of God, what's that say? If you're not seeking God, you don't want him. On the other hand, if you're truly seeking God, you're going to find yourself where he is. And where is he? Where is the author of this book? He's revealed himself here in the book. We can expose our heart's true desire by examining what we spend our time seeking. Think about your life. Can you point to anything in your life that would confirm your pursuit of God? If you're pursuing God, how would you prove it to someone asking? What can a quick examination of your life reveal about these things? And I don't mean you have to go to a psychologist and get into the recesses of your psyche. I'm talking about sitting right where you are in the next 10 seconds. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? How are you spending your energy? These things will reveal whether or not you're seeking God with a whole heart. If you want to seek God but don't sense that yearning of your heart, here are some steps that may be of practical value to you. But let me just say before I give you those steps that until you recognize that you aren't in communion with God, you will never truly seek him, and none of this will mean much to you at all. If you are content in your current relationship or level of intimacy with God, this is just want, 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 want to you. Until you acknowledge that you are sick, you will never pursue a doctor. If you are content with dullness of mind and spirit, and content with the plotting of a heartless Christianity, telling you that you are missing out isn't going to have any effect. 
Because if you really don't believe that happiness can be attained through seeking the Lord with your whole heart, then this won't motivate you. But my, my desire here today, the goal of this sermon, is to excite some interest in these things. So that you might recognize your want. Or at least it, a spark may have taken place. But if you want to want, if you believe but are battling unbelief, there are some things that I can share with you. And let me say to you as a group, uh, we have every, every person on the spectrum represented here, from those who are in hot pursuit of God to those who don't even know him and don't care. I'm not concerned with either end of that spectrum right now. I'm concerned with the mass majority that sit here in lukewarmness and thinks it's okay. That's who I'm concerned with. But if you want to want more of Christ, listen. Examine your life for those things that separate you from him. Examine your life, number one, from those things that separate you from God. And there's only one thing that separates you from God. What is it? Sin. Yeah. With the presence of sin is the absence of God. And so if you're willing to play games with sin, you are unwilling to seek God wholeheartedly. In our natural state without Christ, we really don't seek God, have no affection for him or what he offers. And so I would ask if I were in that state and, and, and a spark of interest in, in this pursuit of God had begun in my soul this morning, I would, I would ask God for a genuine experience with repentance so that I could actually experience God and the joy he offers. Plead in your soul for repentance from these things that separate you from him. Where there is the presence of sin is the absence of God. So plead that the Holy Spirit would expose those areas of sin in your life that may be hidden even to your own understanding so that you may, in fact, experience this God of joy for yourself. And may I remind you that we spent five weeks talking about what repentance is just before we started our sermon series on Psalm 119 so that you could in fact hear from God. Second thing you can do, second step to develop your thirst for God and your hunger for righteousness is set your mind on Christ regularly. Remember what Paul told the Colossians in chapter 3? Set your mind on things above, not on things below. This, this command is for us. Is your mind set on things above or below? Does, are you interested in the things above versus the things below? Listen to Spurgeon again on this. He says, the heart is as insatiable as the grave till Jesus enters it, and then it is a cup full to overflowing. Do you desire that? Christian, listen, do you desire that? Do you desire to have a heart that is full to overflowing? That is, that's what's on the table. That's what's being offered by God to you now in this sermon and throughout the record of Scripture, it's been on the table as an offer to you, to everyone. The heart is as insatiable as the grave till Jesus enters it, and then it's a cup full to overflowing. There is such a fullness in Christ that he alone is the believer's all. The true saint is so completely satisfied with the all-sufficiency of Jesus that he thirsts no more, except it be for deeper drinks of the living fountain. In that sweet manner, believers shall thou thirst. It shall not be a thirst of pain, but a loving desire. Thou wilt find it a sweet thing to be panting after a fuller enjoyment of Jesus' love. Set your mind on Christ 
And of course, where is he? He's in his word. He's with his people. Thirdly, which is our third point, gather regularly with those who have the same desire. You want to know how to excite your love for Christ, your pursuit of him? Spend time with those who have the same desire. That's what clubs are all about. Your quilting clubs, your fly fishing clubs, your Seahawk clubs, your whatever club. You know why they exist? It's because people don't want to lose the interest of that particular pursuit. I want to get better at quilting. I really love quilting. And so we gather with other quilters. You'd be amazed at what kind of reasons people gather for. How about this? The God of joy who's offering you everything. (laughs) So examine what you seek. Test your affections. Examine what you seek, friends. Lay it out on the table. Maybe you and your spouse can sit down and talk it out. Let's look at our lives. What does this display about what we are seeking? Talk about it with your children. Children, if your parents won't talk about it, talk about it with them. What is it that we are seeking? Psalm 105 says this, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence, how often? Continually. Continually. You see, friends, happiness is reserved for those who seek God. How smart would God be if he handed out happiness to those who really aren't seeking him, but just a cheap substitute of him? He wouldn't be all that wise, would he? And so he withholds genuine, fulfilling, lasting happiness for those who actually seek the things he's promised to fulfill. Seek God, and with it comes happiness. Seek him with a whole heart. Psalm 4 There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And then the psalmist says this in verse 7, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound, they being the world. You know, the world tries to convince you that they have everything that you want, don't they? And we buy it much of the time. We actually believe them sometimes, if not most of the time. We think, okay, they look happy. I guess I want that. Well, the author here, the psalmist, says, you put more joy in my heart than when they have everything they say that makes them happy. The things that this world offers, friends, are just cheap substitutes of God-given happiness, and they don't compare. Let me give you a, a short warning here to you Christians who, who uh, are super committed people. Um, I think sometimes Christians, super committed Christians, deceive themselves by confusing their service to God with their pursuit of God. Their service to God is confused with their seeking God. Um, you can be in here 10 to 15 hours a week in this building and just serve till you're blue in the face doesn't mean you're seeking God. It could mean that you're alleviating guilt. Who knows? Only God knows your heart. But Thomas Manton said this, to serve God is to make him the object object of worship. That's good, right? To serve God is to make him the object of worship. To seek God is to make him the end of worship. Don't get those two confused. We need to adopt the determination that we see in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 32, when Jacob was wrestling with God. You remember that scene on the shores of the river, river Jabbok? He wrestled with him all night. And then in the morning, the angel of the Lord, who is God, we read, said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
hanging on to God, white-knuckling it until the end, is the attitude we should assume. This is what we want. He is all we need. Why should we let go of him until we get it? Are you determined to pursue God diligently until you find him? Until you are in deep fellowship with him? Until you experience the joy, fulfillment, and peace that he promises all over scripture for those who pursue him? Or are you going to give up because that's too hard? I'm getting tired of hanging on. Friends, he is all and infinitely more than all he has promised. And you may say, Pastor John, that's a it's a hard thing, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing the difficulty of the journey. I'm emphasizing the promise of the one who created the journey. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Let's pray. God, we... We believe what you say, that you are everything we need, that you are the source of all goodness, of all joy, and yet we find ourselves being distracted throughout the week. We find ourselves not actually pursuing you wholeheartedly, but actually much less than that. Sometimes it seems that we only pursue you on Sundays, and that even only until our favorite sports teams play. God, grant us release from this trap that we find ourselves in in this world. Help us to, to see clearly. I pray that your Holy Spirit would clear our vision so that we could see the trustworthiness of your promises. I pray that you would reward us, those who seek you diligently, that you would bless us with joy in your presence and a determination to pursue you more and more each day. Bless us as a church as we do that corporately. Bless those who attend here week after week, determined to believe your promises that are taught from your word. God, do your work here, please, among us, in us, for your glory and our good. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.